The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. Well, now it's time for our Friday Forum where we look back at some of the stories of the week. I'm joined by Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary, Jim O'Callan, Fianna Fáil TD for Dublin Bay South, and Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Fein TD for Dublin Fingal. Good morning and welcome to One and All. Now, uh, clearly, one of the biggest stories of the week, one of the biggest talking points, was the attack on the young lad in Navan. Arrests have been made, so. If you don't mind, we'll park that one because we don't want to interfere in any way with the judicial process and anything that might follow. Uh, the other story that has dominated the week has been that of the refugee centre in uh, rural County Clare. Louise, what do you make of what's going on there? Because clearly uh, any roof, solid roof over your head is better than a tent. Yeah. However, location, location, location. Yeah, but I mean, the... There are nearly 500 people sleeping in tents at the moment. These people are every bit as much victims of the government's housing crisis as the 12,000 people in emergency accommodation, as the nearly 5,000 people who are trapped in direct but, provision. But Louise, let, let's call a spade a spade. They are victims of the circumstances in their own country, principally, which have driven them out of their own homes. Absolutely. Like the, they're the, the principal perpetrators are those yes. administrations or Absolutely. gangs or whoever. And they have come to our shores seeking asylum, seeking refuge, safety, some peace of mind. And some of them, not all of them, have ended up sleeping in tents on the streets. So that to me represents a failure of policy. Um, and I don't think anyone in government would say that the sight of people outside the uh, the IPAS centre in tents is anything but a failure of policy. Um, I think, you know, we need to, to look with humanity at, uh, at people who have come here for, he- for help, for safety, for security. And I think you're right. Any roof over your head has to be better than sleeping in a tent. And it's very hard to reconcile this notion that that people are very concerned and and people are concerned about the conditions that uh, asylum seekers and refugees and people who have come here for sanctuary are living in. But they should surely be more concerned about the threat of them having to sleep on the streets. So are you therefore in favour of putting as many people as is appropriate. Now, there are far certain issues for the hotel itself, which will be, one presumes, uh, will be resolved. Are you in favour of, you know, putting if it's 70 people, whatever the I think capacity they, might yeah, be? I think we need to look at every option, make sure that people are at the very least uh, warm and dry and have somewhere decent to lay their head. But I also think that we need to, that the government needs to talk to local communities because where there are new residents coming in, they will put an additional strain on the resources like like the doctors, like the, the GP services that are already stretched. So the resources need to match with the numbers for, and you know, people who have those okay, genuine but, concerns but if, do if need there to be are, listened to. If there are, you know, adequate uh, cooking facilities, uh, recreational rooms, decent beds and sanitation, you know, should they just be put there and allowed to stay there in peace and tranquility, even though you know, many are complaining to, it's a bit resources. out of the way. There needs to be resources and supports as well. And I don't think anybody is going to suggest it is ideal. But at the end of the day, the hotel was built for people to sleep in. OK, so you're in favour basically of it being the used. Hotel. Richard. Yeah, look, I mean, basic humanity and decency and solidarity, I think, means that if the choice is between people sleeping in tents on the street or somewhere that isn't perfect, but at least is a bed and a a secure roof over your head. I think we have to show that decency and solidarity. Uh, 
But I do, what I would say is, well, in that context, I, you know, I would urge the people uh, of, of Inch to kind of stand down their protest and see it that way. But what I also think is the government do have to address the uh, issue of community services and facilities and resources. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be better for people who are concerned about certain accommodation being imperfect to actually direct their demands towards the government insisting we get more resources, more facilities, yeah. better transport. I mean, I know nothing, I have to say, about the makeup of, of this cohort either. of people. Yeah. I mean, if some people have come from a war zone, who knows if there's a, a post-traumatic Trauma. stress disorder yeah. uh, there, whether they need psychiatric or psychological help. We don't know anything of that. On the other hand, they may be, you know, 60 or 70 very able-bodied young men who are very unlikely to have health issues. Do you know what I mean? We don't know. Uh, well, I think you know, people who have come uh, all of this way to flee in war, flee in persecution, I think the likelihood is that they are going to need additional supports. So, so I, I don't, I think the, the, the people are right to call for additional supports. But they're, they're wrong to be blocking the road because that's not going to get, they need to be lobbying the government and lobbying them hard uh, in relation to services for their own local Jim, area. Isn't it a, a very challenging situation, Pat? Um, Mount Street and Sandwood Street is in my constituency. I'm very concerned about it. Obviously, we need to provide accommodation for the people who are in the tents. Having said that, we need to recognise as well that it's not suitable for people just to set up tents in a busy city centre place because it's just going to lead to uh, chaos within the city. Listen, I think we need to take into account that the Irish people have been very generous over the past uh, 18 months. We've taken in 100,000 people who either have temporary protection or are seeking international protection. Today, we are providing accommodation to 84,000 of them. That's a remarkable achievement. I know it's not, I'm not looking for any plaudits. I know the government isn't looking for plaudits. But when you reflect upon the fact that there are 500 without accommodation at present, you do also need to take into account that there are 84,000 that have accommodation. So, like, the state is trying to do its best to welcome the fact that more places are coming on stream. Uh, listen, the difficulty in communities, it's understandable. But uh, nobody can have a veto on people coming in. We all have to play our part. Like In my own constituency, a couple of days ago, I was notified of 66 men moving into two residential houses uh, in the constituency. That has to be done. We've all got to carry this burden. And um, the question, though, I think uh, people are saying, well, it's because uh, some of these uh, seeking international protection come from uh, countries that we're not familiar with. We weren't familiar with uh, Ukraine. But the big difference, I suppose, is that many of the people who came from Ukraine were family groups. But there's a difference. So, so the, there is a balance there when you've got mothers, fathers and children and the children are going to go to school. The integration in the community becomes almost organic. It does can, happen. Can I just make one point that isn't made. There is sometimes people say, oh, what's the difference between people coming from Ukraine and people coming from Africa? There is a difference. The difference is that if you're coming from Ukraine, you automatically have temporary protection. If you're coming from other countries, you're applying for international protection and you go through the process. No, but so, I, I, if just what I'm talking about, the, the uh, gender issue here. When you've got women and children coming to a country, um, they integrate much more quickly. When you put 59 or 60 men from many different countries from all over maybe Africa and Eastern Europe, wherever they're, they're coming from, that integration process, I think, is more difficult. 
But I think, you, you know, people will be uh, after after they've been through the process, they'll be able to go to work. Um, and that is a, a great way to integrate. Actually, I was down in meeting the uh, people in Pennies during the week and they were very proud of the fact that there are 61 nationalities represented in their workforce. The same with Dublin Bus. And you see that and people celebrate that diversity. They actually love the, what the diversity brings. So the integration happens in all sorts of levels. It doesn't just happen at the level of the school gate, you know, and, and work is a really important way in for uh, for people to integrate into into new communities. But again, I mean, I want to pick up on something Jim said. He said it's not appropriate for people to be putting down tents in a busy street. Like, where are they going to put their tents, Jim? Do you know what I mean? Like, they, they have to go somewhere. They're there because they're close to the iPass centre. They're not there through their choice. Mm-hmm. They're not there through their choice Richard. at all. And look, the, the other thing that a lot of the uh, roads of this argument lead back to the housing and accommodate the wider housing and accommodation crisis, right? Which we shouldn't have, and that is a failure of government. And we need to address that as a matter of urgency. And the government has not done enough. No doubt, Jim will say things are improving, but I mean, we have tens and tens of thousands of empty properties, even on the way here today. Literally, as I was walking here, I met a woman from the Ivy Trust, mm-hmm. and she said she just put she pulled me up and she said, "You know, I, I'm living in the Ivy Trust," and she said, "On my corridor." alone there are two apartments that have been empty for a year because the Ivy Trust haven't been given the money by the government to reopen them right and this now fair play to her she was scandalised she has a place but she was scandalised that there are people homeless on the streets and the government haven't allocated the money necessary but is that not a, a you know a small bureaucratic blunder probably ah, more than illustrative, no, though, it's Pat, illustrative of what's going on okay. and you know Jim. I mean you can see that all over the place I, just, I know Richard isn't trying to do this but we need to be careful the 84,000 people who are being accommodated at present the people who have temporary <coughs> protection are seeking international protection they're not taking up any accommodation that would be available to people in local authorities accommodation or seeking local authority accommodation. I just think we need to emphasise that. No, but the Irish Refugee Council is calling for a whole of government <coughs> approach and wants the Minister for Housing, I think it's Mr Hederman, wants the Minister for Housing to, to call on all departments to, to pool their resources. Ultimately, that housing, and I think he said this, that the housing authorities in all the local uh, county councils should be brought to bear on the international uh, housing of asylum seekers. Listen, it is absolutely essential that we provide sheltered accommodation to people who are seeking international protection or who have temporary protection. I think we need to be careful, though, about amalgamating people who are seeking that protection with people who for years have been on the local authority housing list. I don't think that's a good idea. There are separate issues as to whether or not you're granted and how you're granted accommodation when you're seeking international <coughs> protection. Local authority housing is a separate issue to that for people who've been on it for very many years. And I just think we need to be careful about merging them together. Responsibility, and Roderick O'Gorman has been very straight up about this, responsibility rests with his department, Department of Integration. Of course, there has to be a whole government approach. But we just be wary about saying to the Department of Housing, add these figures to your homeless list, because that'll create more tension. No, I don't think that's the, the point. The point is that the housing crisis is something that shouldn't exist and we would be in a far far better position to deal with the uh, asylum applicants the people from Ukraine fleeing war if we didn't have a dire housing crisis and the government needs to take much more radical measures 
to address that fact. I mean, you know that we think it was a disastrous decision to lift the eviction ban in the current circumstances. For example, the the government has not done enough about refurbishing the tens of thousands of vacant and derelict properties in this country that are just sitting there. Uh, And the scale of the public and affordable housing programme is just not enough. If if we were doing a hell of a lot more than that, we would be in a better position. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that's where we need to direct our energy is addressing that wider housing and accommodation crisis. And we have record resources to do it. Uh, But of course, we need to do everything we can to provide a roof over the head for anybody, whether they're an asylum applicant or whether there's somebody affected by the housing Before I go back to Jim on this, uh, and uh, Louise, I want your comment on that. Jim's uh, contention that we should not mix the two lists because you could imagine someone whose need is dire because of where they've come from suddenly gets a house from a local authority list and Mrs. O'Brien or Mr. O'Brien, who've been there for seven or eight years, are saying nobody is Hang proposing doing that. Okay, so the, the the lists are kept very, very much separate. But the simple fact is, and Richard is right, all of the roads on this lead back to the housing crisis, which is a direct result of government policy. So if we did not have the pressure on accommodation, so for example, if the nearly five thousand people living in direct provision who have leave to remain and most of them are working were able to actually just go out and rent in a normal rental market, well then those spaces would be made free. So it is not true either to say that the lists are completely unconnected. They are very much connected. They're all connected by one thread, which is the yeah. housing policy. Look, housing look, there are all sorts of anomalies policy. here and the system is utterly flawed. There's no question about it. But I'm thinking of a young fellow who's thrown out of Mountjoy Jail having committed a relatively minor offence. He's on his own on the street. You know, he's not in direct provision. Yeah, no, and, and that's and an absolute are, that is an absolute because scandal. there's nowhere you know I mean? for him so, to go so, so, well everything that you're saying Pat it all comes back to the same thing which is the housing crisis so he the, you know, the person coming out of, of Mount Joy this morning doesn't have anywhere to go obviously they're going to try and access homeless services they're probably going to join a list another list and you, you can keep the list segregated if you like but the numbers are all adding up and they're people okay. who require accommodation can I, can I just say I don't and I know uh, Louise and Richard aren't trying to do this I don't think it's a good idea to try to say all of these issues derive from the housing crisis. When you look at this, obviously migration is going to be a huge political issue in this country for the next 20, 30 years. There's no doubt about that. We obviously need to recognise that we need permanent accommodation that's going to deal with an average amount of people who are coming in seeking international protection on an annual basis. They have it in other countries. We need to start constructing that now. That's the most feasible way of dealing with it. But do we need to set targets? Because, you know, no one answers the questions because it's not politically correct actually to either pose or answer it is why is Ireland getting a disproportionate number of people? Now, we're not talking about neighbouring countries where you get flooding of refugees over borders and who are often in tent cities when they mm-hmm. arrive there. We're talking about people who journey from quite long distances to fetch up here. And we're wondering whether a quota system for European countries based on population, and that would change with the the flux we, we, of we, refugees in terms of its absolute number, but we can't do that legally. We can't do that. No, but I'm wondering, is there an EU policy on this? Well, the, I know migration is discussed at EU level, but I suppose what has distorted the issue in terms of international protection is the Ukraine war. Like That is an exceptional event. Now, you may say that's going to continue for very many years, but like there was, I think, eight, we've taken in 83,000 Ukrainian refugees. We would not have the crisis in respect of international <coughs> protection had it not been for that. So I think we need to recognise the exceptionality of last year that, as well. That's not true. 
there, there were thousands of people, Jim, long ever before a tank uh, rolled into Ukraine. There were thousands of people. I know, but the numbers were reasonable. Let me finish like, my point. There were thousands of people living in direct provision. Protection. There were thousands of people living mm. in direct provision, given leave to remain, who should have been able to move on, who couldn't. Long ever before the Ukraine was invaded. Long ever before I know, that. But the numbers so were the much smaller than that There were 4,000, 5,000 coming in uh, a year. Well, it's, we had 100,000 last it's year. varying degrees right. of Richard? the same crisis, Jim. But look, uh, look ironically, so ironically, I mean, <laughs> there's no doubt Ukraine has exacerbated the situation. Uh, to my mind, that's also why, to be honest, with a little bit more effort should be put, and obviously Putin is the main culprit in that terrible war, but a little bit more emphasis should be put in trying to end that war, in my opinion, rather than simply escalate it. And that's true in many of the situations around the world from where pl- people are fleeing, because you, you'll also find there's political decisions that were made by some of the big powers around the world, including Europe and the United States, in many cases that have often helped create these situations. So a little bit of thought should be put into uh, into that fact. But there is a certain irony, which is the uh, the inflow of Ukrainian refugees has also highlighted the fact, the need, and put a bit of pressure on the government, the need to dramatically increase housing output to deal with with a pre-existing housing crisis. I mean, it is a fact we have massive labour shortages in this country at the moment, right? Yeah. We actually need more workers in this country but the, in construction, the problem in health, the problem and they know where to live. I used to joke, to live. during the yeah. Celtic Tiger, I used to joke that we were building houses, we were using Polish workers to build the houses for Polish workers to live in. Do you know now we have the problem mm. that if we bring uh, workers from outside mm. in, where do they live? I mean, are they going to be well, like the Irish who slept ten in a room in Brixton? You know, is that although uh, interestingly, Pat, huge numbers of the Polish workers then left. Yeah, yeah. they actually yeah. left as, they soon as, they, to as soon as they got the opportunity to go back to Poland. They did, yeah. uh, and, and many of them did because line. they couldn't get somewhere permanent yeah. to live here. They were renting, and their rent was. But isn't part of the reason when people are coming here? If you're if you're fleeing persecution, you have a choice as to where you go. Part of the reason they're coming to <coughs> Ireland is because we're such a successful economy, because we're such a welcoming country, because we have a government that's prepared to provide accommodation mm. to people. Who but come do here. we need to eliminate the possibility of you know the begrudgery that uh, seeps in about why are they coming here? Because 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 they're coming from South Africa, for example, huge country, many different cities, many different places. Why does someone from a particular city, say Joburg, decide mm-hmm. that Cape Town is not the place they want to go or whatever? Instead, they come to Cork or, or Dublin. And they're assessed when they come in. We don't accept but what, I, what I was going to say is that if we had a proper visa system, so people who are literally economic migrants like the Irish mm-hmm. can apply and, and get proper legal access, get a job and fend for themselves because the work is there. Listen, there's no doubt we need economic migration and migration has improved this country. But we're always going to find ourselves in a situation where there are countries from which people will claim they are fleeing and there needs to be a process in place for that to be assessed. I want to just touch on one more topic and I know Richard is exercised about this and also Jim that that is the motion that the people before profit are going to put on private jets that they would not be allowed uh, except in exceptional circumstances. Richard, is that so to either fly in and out or overfly Ireland? Yeah, I mean, medical for medical reasons or for uh, military or political reasons, we, we accept that. But the, the, uh, we have 7,000 private jet flights uh, last year. That's up 150%. And one of those flights uh, produces uh, about 10 tonnes of carbon, um, carbon emissions. 
one human being, one person here, on average, uh, produces 14 tonnes in the course of a year, right? So we're almost talking about one flight alone is as much carbon emission as what a person produces in a year. Uh, one flight is equal to about 40,000 kilometres of a drive. Uh, so it is a massive uh, carbon uh, output by the super rich. Uh, the the average wealth of a person who owns one of these uh, uh, private jets is 1.2 billion euro, right? So this is very, very rich people taking completely unnecessary okay, flights. Jim, well, I'm not that exercised by it. Uh, people for profit are perfectly entitled to put forward legislation. My own view is that this legislation uh, is extreme and like all extreme legislation, it gets publicity, but I don't think it will make a good law. And I say that with great respect uh, to Richard. Let's look at it. Not only are they trying to ban pri- private jets landing in Ireland, but flying over Ireland. So anyone flying from the States to France or Britain would have to avoid Ireland. We'll make Ireland an outlier. And we also need to recognise that this isn't just about private individuals. There's a lot of big companies that have private jets. Uh, We're dependent upon them for foreign direct investment. Part of the reason we have such large amounts of corporation tax is because these companies are investing in Ireland. If we start saying to them, you can't land in Ireland, you can't even fly over us, we're certainly sending a message to them that they're not welcome here and we need to encourage foreign direct investment in Ireland. Louise? Yeah, um, I don't don't accept that point at all. In fact, it seems to me that the government are always terribly concerned uh, about emissions when it comes to people on low incomes, uh, you know, who can't afford to retrofit fit their homes. They're never that concerned about emissions from the super wealthy. Sinn Féin had proposed in our alternative budget uh, a €3,000 levy departure tax on uh, private jets to ensure that they pay their way. That would have generated about €18 million per annum. Um, But there's nothing coming from the government in terms of... It seems like they're quite happy for the private jets to land to take off without any interference whatsoever. And yet, at the same time, people who are struggling to to, uh, heat their homes, people who are struggling to buy fuel they're the ones who are going to be left to the end of the queue I'm, I'm wondering about the makeup of all these flights I mean I suspect many of them are so-called business flights rather than rich golfers flying in to play Trump down well, in you see, might suspect that, and I might suspect something else but the, the, the government need to know and they need to they need to gather this data No I'm just so wondering would can... that be Sinn Féin policy to row in with the, the people before, before profit so what bill we where proposed you would... was a departure tax of 3,000 euros to ensure that there was a, a levy on it and again you know so we Richard, do need is that to look a, at a happy compromise are, are coming make from the super rich pay through the nose well, for look, first of all I think, per- I think the government and Jim should acknowledge there's an issue here I mean the, ri- the richest 1% in the world produce 16% of the world's emissions, right? So, it, but it is, it, it, it's the low-income pensioner or uh, working family who's terrified to turn on the heat during the winter uh, because of the, you know, the cost of that, which includes things like carbon tax and so on. So ordinary people who are the least guilty of polluting our, our environment are the ones who actually suffer the cost of it. But then you have the super rich Of course there's an issue here. My my own view is that when it comes to changing human behaviour, the best way to do that isn't by criminalising it or banning it. It's by using incentives and disincentives, carrot and stick. And obviously, as well as that, we need to be encouraging uh, technology and the use of green hydrogen in order to ensure that in the future, all airplanes, not just private jets, will have a much more carbon neutral capacity to travel to 
travel around the world. Like That is the issue that needs to be dealt here. If we start just presenting Ireland as a unique outlier where we banned any smaller well, jets flying the over the parliament, country. Jim. They're discussing the same proposal no, in the French I, parliament, I, I, I have no objection. I have no objection to well, it being discussed, but I'm entitled to oppose it. You know? jets, but I, you're entitled I, I to advocate it. I'm entitled to oppose it. Yeah. I think it would make us no, no, an outlier. Do you not think it's interesting, Jim, that other governments are concerned about private jets? Do you not suspect there's something a little bit... A, a little bit off that your own government doesn't seem concerned in the well, slightest. I haven't done a review of every government in the world, but I do know that this government is the government that has been most concerned about reducing our carbon emissions. They've done more than any previous government and, in fact, done a lot more than what Sinn Féin have advocated, Louise. That's actually not true, Jim. And we can see year on year our emissions targets get failed um, every <laughs> single time. Words, you Richard. set targets and you fail them oh, all a lot the time. Of, a lot of this, the funding, for example, for grants to retrofit people's homes are heavily favoured towards those who already have money. Whereas uh, less well-off people uh, can't afford to retrofit their homes. So, in fact, a lot of the government money that is supposedly dealing with climate action is, in effect, right. subsidising the we very wealthy to, to retrofit They're screaming at me homes. to end this uh, conversation. <laughs> My thanks to Richard Boyd Barrett, to Jim O'Callaghan and to Louise O'Reilly. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk.